Welcome to the first in a series on navigating Lyme disease for patients and doctors. I'm very pleased to be here with Dr. Daniel Cameron, an expert in Lyme disease with over 35 years of experience and a tremendous amount of writing, including his book, Navigating Lyme Disease. And uh, Dr. Cameron, thank you so much for being here and for doing this both for patients and for doctors. I think it's so important. I'm pleased to be with you. So what we're going to do is we're going to take and go through a series of episodes based on different topics that are covered in your book. And so tonight what we're going to do is we're going to talk about kind of the basics of ticks, rashes, Lyme disease, that sort of thing. And what we'll do is we'll reference specific pages of your book as we go through this interview. And that way, people that are watching this will be able to go to your book and see the specific areas that we're talking about and also be able to find more information. Sound like a plan? It's a great plan. So let's start with this. Let's just do a little background on Lyme disease in the United States. I think one of the things when we started working together that really shocked me was the prevalence of Lyme disease. You know, I I would have thought as as uh, somebody with no experience in it at all that maybe it was a couple of thousand cases a year. And boy, was I off, huh? Oh, yeah, it's it. It's amazing because at first there was maybe 30,000 cases, but that was only what the CDC said. And they figured out that there's at least 10 times more. Like Now they're up to about 450,000 a year. Um, at first it was pretty simple. They thought, oh, this housewife in, in Lyon, Connecticut, they saw it, some kids were sick uh, and swollen knees. And, and so it started out rather simple as a swollen knee. They thought it was juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. And then over the years, they realized, oh, it causes neurologic issues, neuropsych issues, all kinds of problems. And so it's not just isolated to Lyme or my area in New York. It's a, it turns out it's all over. And we blame the deer at first because they called it a deer tick. But the birds seem to be moving around all over the place. And so it's yeah. a... There isn't any yards that are free from birds where it's a, it's certainly a, turned into an impressive problem. And so the issue, the reason it was called a, a deer ticket originally is because we thought that's where these ticks were coming from. And if I understand you correctly, what you're saying is that not only is it deers, but now birds carry these ticks and these and they're basically delivering them to people, uh, obviously unintentionally. Yeah, they... They certainly saw a lot of ticks on deer, and and there were a lot of ticks that would get a meal from a, you know the deer that were all over in the neighborhood. Sometimes there'd be clusters of ticks, you know, covering them, and the deer hunters would see these problems. But then they realized, well, the deer aren't really infected; it's those mice. Those yeah. mice are the, those little white-footed mice that are cute and you know that are all over the place that give troubles in the house. Well. When they're in the yard, that's when they really um, get infected. And then since they're infected they're, most of their life, that every last tick that bites that mouse gets infected. So it's a they could have called it a white-footed mouse tick and probably I'll been be. a little more descriptive. And then it keeps showing up on other animals. And But the birds are important 
not so much for infection, but they really move things around. And any yard you think is safe is like, that could change. Canada itself thought they were probably okay as long as there weren't too many deer migrating until they realized that, that birds can go a long ways in a short distance and give troubles. And, and they've set up, you know, whole uh, life uh, cycles of ticks in, the, in Canada that they never thought was possible. So talk a little bit about what is Lyme disease, because the other thing that really threw me when we started working together is it's not necessarily just one thing, is it? Well, it's at first, the, um, Dr. Bergdorfer discovered that there was a spirochete in the tick, in the belly of the tick, and that that spirochete would make its way up into the salivary glands into you. And that's when you got sick. But over the over time, they've discovered maybe a dozen other things in a tick. The ones we know the best are things like Babesia, which is a parasite. Ehrlichia and anaplasmosis are sort of atypical bacteria. There's even uh, this question of why is Barnella keep showing up in, uh, in ticks? Why does it show up in people? And so the CDC keeps track of at least a dozen different kinds of infections in those uh, ticks. And once that infection gets in you, you're focusing on Borrelia. Um, I should say the word Borrelia, Brigdorferi means they honor Dr. Brigdorferi and add an I to his name. Oh. So that's where you keep hearing Borrelia Brigdorferi because of his name. Oh. But once you get something in you, you don't always know what got you. And so it's often not the damage to your individual body parts, it's the immune system is so involved, so over the top, so fight or flight type stuff, so many cytokines that you're sick from your own body, your own strong body fighting itself, and you get caught in a crossfire. One of the things that, that really shocked me in doing research for this and seeing some of the videos that are on your website was the difference in people who had not been properly treated versus and how they walked in the world versus how they walked in the world after proper treatment. It, it seems to me that with so many different things that need to be considered in terms of what's actually going on, to see somebody walking through the world as normal, quote unquote, uh, it's mind boggling. And you really had amazing recognitions early on in your career in terms of not only taking care of the short-term acute issues, but recognizing how it could be chronic and how to deal with that. Can you just talk a little bit about that experience initially and how that's kind of shaped how you treat Lyme now? I had three, three of my patients um, early in my practice who were ill you know, in a different way than what I what I learned in, in my uh, residency. I did medical school at the University of Minnesota, and I moved to Manhattan. And, and at Beth Israel, I would certainly see a lot of patients, uh, but nothing like this. And, you know, in primary care, I would typically refer people, refer people, but, and, but I'd have them come back. And, you know, the rheumatologist didn't have an answer. I don't know the... Neurologists didn't have one. 
In fact, yeah, one rheumatologist said that I had sent to someone to Boston to see Dr. Steer. A rheumatologist said, well, why don't you try something different than doxycycline? Maybe your moxicillin will work. And sure enough, that helped. <laughs> and so over time, you know, if I have patients come back, you know, if they don't get better with a specialist, I'm, I'm on top of them. And those three patients, just those three really allowed me to cut my teeth and get to know Lyme and get to know that, yes, some of my patients are doing well and some are quite a struggle, you know, for me, for everybody. And, uh, and so that they, I never forget those first three. I think everybody is, uh, has somebody they remember. Uh, they get to know Lyme and, and, and it's, it's a joy to figure out how to uh, get someone better. Misdiagnosis is a huge issue with Lyme, isn't it? Yeah, that's so easy for some reason to have a patient where they don't recognize it. They recognize, well, maybe that headache is from migraines and my swollen knee is because I was in a lacrosse. And uh, that uh, that fatigue I have as well because I work hard. I have a kid. I have this and that. I'm in school. And so they forget that if you had up too many things from head to foot, you know, I had somebody today where, yes, they were exhausted, but their feet were so painful they could barely walk. And and uh, and the x-ray was normal. The rheumatologist couldn't find anything. And you get into, like, very easy for the patient to not notice that they're all interrelated, that there's something wrong. And it's, but it's also easy for a doctor to work on one part. You know, with the busy practice, they'll work on the headaches and, you know, do the referral to the neurologist. They'll uh, say, oh, there might be something wrong with the thyroid, so they focus on that. And so it's very easy for a doctor with a lot of uh, um, individual issues to uh, forget to have the patient come back and say, by the way, what else is wrong? And tell me the whole story. So I can look at it as one one problem is it if it's Lyme, I don't want to. I don't want anybody to be overlooked. It doesn't matter how many specialists you go to. If you're still sick, it's worth looking a second time at Lyme disease. Let's talk about how people underestimate the time a tick has been attached. You say a summary published in the United States indicated that less than half of Lyme disease patients were even aware of the tick bite, and even fewer in the 20 to 25% range, could recall a bite or a rash site. So what do we do about that? What are the implications of that? Well, I, you know, I always refer to like, you know, Colonel Mustard. You know, the, it's hard to, you know, know what to do if you don't have Colonel Mustard, you don't have the candlestick. That is, you don't have a tick, don't have a rash. And so with those pieces missing, it's hard to play the game. And this is real life. That's not just sort of a board game. And so it's a, even though 25% see the tick, um, in that, that particular background story is they went to, under a perfect situation, went to an ER and, and a number of hospitals and mom was there, dad was there, the child was there. And they were saying, well, can any of you recognize a tick or have seen a tick or could the tick have led to that big old erythema migra rashes? But only, only about one out of five actually recalled it. And that's under the ideal conditions. So that means so many people don't have kernel mustard. And then if they don't get a rash, 
then you have to recognize it based on symptoms. So that those those patients sometimes have a harder time. Uh, they go to every other specialist before they realize, gosh, I six months have passed and I'm still having troubles. Um, could it be Lyme after all? And I just didn't always encourage people to well, to look at Lyme a little sooner. You know, if they're sick for three weeks and they're coming back, and six weeks they're coming back is is uh, even if they're missing the, those clues, um, look a second time. One of the things that you mentioned on that same page is just the idea that it should be any kind of recognition of, yes, I had a tick bite, or how long has it been attached, should be an underestimate. Why is that? Yeah, that, well, that that was based on an article where they were they, they look at a tick, see how engorged the tick, and, uh, and the person might say, oh, it's been on 12 hours. But entomologists said, well, gee, it's got to be on at least 36 hours to get that engorged. You know, when you look at some of the other things about a tick, you know, that are not every, not everything gets passed as Lyme. A lot of these other infections like Powassan virus passes in minutes. The other bacteria passes much quicker. It's just that any, in that kind of um, article that I was uh, discussing is that you can't trust uh, the number of hours you, you, you um, have that tick on you. And, and one more thought about that is that, that a tick, put some kind of anesthetic type material in you. And so when it injects this in you, you don't feel it at first. So people are often given the times for when they feel it, not when it actually bit. So it might be a day before you feel it or, or you've been looking at it for a day or two and thinking it was a mole until you realize, oh, that is something. So the guesses of how long it's been on is, uh, is, is off. You know, one of the things that occurs to me is also that we should talk about in some detail about the size of ticks. I, I grew up in California, and we were always told that deer ticks were very, very small and hard to find. Talk about the size of ticks and, and finding them. I think in the book, I showed some pictures of the deer tick. And most of the discussion of a deer tick is a small one. You know, they always say size of a poppy seeds, but you know, I have poppy seeds bagels and it's bigger than that. But you know, sometimes the body's kind of clear, so you don't always see the extent of it. I'm looking for a black shield and that black shield is pretty easy to see when, when you finally see it. But what happens is that, you know, normally you get a, you know, a, a, um, the caterpillar turns into a butterfly, metamorphosis. But a nymph, when it goes through metamorphosis, turns into an adult tick. So you're stuck with this adult tick, which is sometimes three times si the size of a, a nymph. So even though they say pay attention to that nymph, they never uh, seem to focus very much on the fact that the adult female deer tick can give you the infection also. And so... Sometimes the worst case I have are people who had ignored the fact that the tick was so big. They threw it, tossed the tick out because they thought it was the size of a dog tick, couldn't be a tick. And it turns out that the, they were wrong. They kept focusing only on the, that nymph tick. One of the things that you mentioned in your book is that physicians must maintain a high level of suspicion for co-infection as untreated disease can result in long-term and sometimes 
life-threatening sequelae. Now, this when one looks at a tick, you know, everybody has their own start. You know, there's so much discussion about Lyme, and and there are people who get better with just treatment for Lyme. And when I say Lyme, it's usually the Borrelia burgdorferi, and that's fine when you get better, but you know, with any kind of infection that you learn in medical school is that that you got to at least be aware that there's other things in any infection. They in any, in any hospital setting, they'll often come down to three different diagnoses, three different treatments until they get more information. So as long as that, a doctor is aware that, you know, there's up, up to a dozen type things in there, you know, there's some things that are viruses that you really don't do anything with. Some of them are in Colorado, in the Mayo Clinic area. But as long as you keep track of it, there's some standard infections is that you're, you can't just get away with just doxycycline's one size fits all. And just treating for Lyme is that, that if you're going to want to have a successful treatment, you have to be aware that there's these other things in a tick that can give troubles and you may have to modify treatment. Or if they're still sick, you might have to modify treatment. Let's move to a discussion of Lyme and children. You mentioned a study that examined 325 children, and only a minority of children at 18.5% even recalled a tick bite preceding their illness. How do we deal with that as parents and as doctors to help a, a kid to get this under control quickly? Well, I think that that study of the in that ER was is so insightful that um, you know you get parents who still think oh they got to have a tick bite or the kids are dismissive and so it's a it's just an, a great reminder of of how important to move on if you don't get the rash move on and and look at the whole person so that's that was a great study by a great set of researchers adding their contribution to it because. Yeah, other people's always said maybe forty percent had a tick bite, uh, but it can be that pretty um, pretty tough if you just have to rely on a tick bite to make a diagnosis. One of the things that you've mentioned to me in previous conversations is just the importance, and you actually referred to it toward the beginning of this discussion, is that you recommend that doctors really take the time to listen and hear the full story of a patient that's struggling. Talk a little bit about the importance of that and why that, what that's done in terms of your ability to be a doctor that's an expert in treating this. Well, I find the, the symptoms, if somebody has Lyme, are pretty significant, you know, so if I have somebody that they have a little fatigue, a uh, little bit of uh, mild headaches, they have some pains here and there, and but they're active, they're functioning. You know, on a one to ten scale, you know, a fair amount of people have one, two, three on on symptoms. But if you asked, you'd be surprised how many times they have something in the eight, nine, ten range, and they often have. If you ask, they'll have headaches, head pressure. They'll have some lightheadedness from the autonomic system. They'll have joint pain. They may not even have joint pain, but they have all these neuropsych issues. And so 
uh, it's it's just easy to um, focus in on one issue after three uh, three senses. It's easy to just dump that one diagnosis and and you you know somehow you got to figure out how to at least sit down with somebody that's sick and get at least one crack. I find it doesn't take as long to ask those kind of questions. Just you're either fine or you're not. And when you're not, it's pretty impressive. And uh, and and so I think that if one, you know, in a routine practice is um, aware that the scope, I think it's going to be easier and quicker to get on with the treatment because you want that patient to, you know, be happy, especially now when they deal with, you know, life satisfaction, they deal with um, a patient who wants to get well and they want to have a, a clinic or, or a, a facility and have a, you know, happy patient population is that if you leave too many sick for too long, it's going to be pretty frustrating for the community if if they get lost in the shuffle until they finally, six months later, get treated. Let's move to uh, the rashes that we commonly associate with Lyme disease. A lot of Lyme disease rashes have been mislabeled. And you mentioned a study in which 88 patients uh, are presented with a rash, and 13 of these had been incorrectly identified or treated. Talk about what can be done to help doctors to be better at, at recognizing what they're seeing. Well, the CDC so often, you know, is helping, and but at the same time, not, so, not helping so much because they spend so much time talking about a bullseye rash, with some redness, some clearing, and then a surrounding rash, which is fine, but only one out of four people have that rash. That leaves out of three out of four who actually have a rash doesn't doesn't present that way. Much more common is a flat red rash. Um, and they usually say two inches or greater in diameter because you know sometimes you get a little bit of irritation from the bite. The tick itself creates some kind of irritation. So, but those rashes that are over two inches, uh, I have to be taken seriously. But a flat red's important. Now, it many uh, people tend to use that and say, "Well, that's cellulitis, which is an infection of the skin, or that's a spider bite, or that's uh, that contact dermatitis, eczema." And so, um, you know, I always encourage people not to jump to any other diagnosis first without at least keeping Lyme as a thought. You know, as I said, nobody has to be completely right all the time. All they have to do is say, hey, if Lyme is a thought, don't forget that's, uh, that should be considered. Uh, even if you decide not to treat, you should have them followed up closely to make sure that um, they're not developing some other, other issues because that rash is going to go away no matter what you do. It, it, it often will resolve without our treatment. Now, the, there's a bunch of other rashes that keep popping up. There's some that look like a spider bite. There's others that look like blistering rashes. I've had some that are deep purple, black, where it looks like, gosh, is it, maybe it's gonna, they're going to slough their skin off or do something, but they're so deep red and purple that uh, and it just clears up. And then after that rash clears up, sometimes people are left with kind of a brown, light brown, area for a while because the skin went through some inflammation, so it leaves you, it leaves you kind of a brownish uh, color and a little bit of scaliness sometimes. And half get itchy, half don't. 
sometimes a rash is, shows up not just as one rash, but it'll, it'll go in the bloodstream, came out as disseminated. That means it's this location, that location. If it's disseminated, it's, it's usually not a bullseye. It's a kind of a flat, irregular shape. You know, oval rashes are pretty common also. So it's just that there's a tremendous uh, diversity of rashes that are out there. So if you're fortunate enough to get a rash, it, it'd be nice to make sure they get recognized and acknowledged. It's worth talking to the patient that if you decide, hey, I'm going to do a spider bite, is that that Lyme can be tricky. If they, Even if you just inform the patient that it's a thought, they can uh, make sure that they uh, will get back to you. When you think about this being diagnosed, what is the one thing that you want doctors to be thinking about in regards to making a correct diagnosis of Lyme? Well, there's so many diseases out there that as a primary care doctor and now as a you know, working with Lyme to consider. That's why I do lots of blood tests, making sure it's not thyroid, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, anemia. And that's important. Uh, all I'm saying is I, I add in there that if they get a tick, you know, don't uh, miss that opportunity. If they get a rash, you know, just keep that in mind that they're not, they might not get a rash, but if they have it, pay attention. But most importantly is that if you don't get tick, don't get a rash, you can't find a better answer, think about Lyme. And the other thing is that if you got a neurologist plan or some other specialist plan and it looks a lot like Lyme, wouldn't hurt to at least look at treatment because if you wait for months of consultations, of months of follow-up, it might get more difficult to treat while while you already had that thought about Lyme. Or if you say, hey, it's a psych issue and you don't have them come back and they've been to the therapist and not, it's not psych, is that if you don't have them come back and follow them, it's really easy for someone to get lost in the system. And lastly, there's a, sometimes they get labeled as something in the chart. They might get labeled as depression, which is, they have a piece of that. Or they get told they have um, migraines. And so it's very hard to get attention if somebody's already written in the chart. One part of the whole diagnosis, they get lost because nobody else looks past, or at least they don't do it as much as they should, look past what's on the piece of paper. And it's uh, you can kind of get lost in the system. Dr. Daniel Cameron, you are the author of An Expert's Guide on Navigating Lyme Disease. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it, and I know there are a lot of people that are going to walk away from this, whether they're physicians or patients, and feel a whole lot less fear and a whole lot more hope to be able to manage this properly and to be able to get through to the other side. Thanks so much for doing this. 